Hey, Scott here with Grace Bible Church. Before we get into this message, I just wanted to thank you for streaming this sermon. We pray that each week you are challenged by who God is and what he has done for you. Now, this is never meant to be a substitute for you to be an active member of a community of faith. If you live in the Holidaysburg area, or if you're in town for any reason, we encourage you to gather with us on Sunday mornings for our word and worship. You can learn more about what God is doing through our church body on our website, gbclive.org. We are in John chapter 19. I'm just going to be reading verses 16 through 30. John chapter 19. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. But he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Well, before we look at the glory of the resurrection, we need to understand it against the backdrop of the crucifixion. It's like taking a priceless diamond and putting it on a a, a black felt pad to really see the highlights. And in a certain way, this is what we do with the crucifixion of Christ. And I'm glad you're here that we can understand this together, and I'm really happy for the folks that watch us online as well. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is more than just a historical event. You know, nowadays there is broad scholarly opinion, consensus, that the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth outside of Jerusalem under the oversight of Pontius Pilate is an indisputable historical fact. Uh, Years ago, uh, people would mock that and say Jesus of Nazareth was just a figment of people's imagination. But scholarship now has said that, no, in fact, Jesus of Nazareth was indeed crucified outside of Jerusalem under Pontius Pilate. Now, that's not to say that all these scholars believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, We understand that from the reliable documents of the New Testament. 
Dr. Gary Habermas, who's research professor of apologetics and philosophy at Liberty University, writes, the New Testament and the Gospels in particular are authentic and trustworthy documents for the life and teachings of Jesus. Yes, we have faith, but our faith is a reasonable faith. And, and it's based upon the accounts of Scripture, the inspired Word of God, which have stood the test of time. And so we can have confidence in what the gospel writers relate to us about the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection is really reliable information. You'll remember in 1 Corinthians 15 how Paul begins his outline of the gospel. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is essential for any person's salvation. If Jesus Christ did not die on the cross, if this is just some story that was made up, uh, and some would say, historians would say, no, no, he, we know he died on a cross, but if he wasn't the son of God, then you and I are wasting our time here this morning, and we should be out there doing whatever people that don't go to church do on Sunday morning, because if Jesus Christ is not the son of God, then it doesn't really make any difference. But we know that Jesus is the son of God. We know the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is central to God's plan of salvation. Now, it's interesting to note that the Jews usually executed people by stoning. But again, God orchestrated history so that his son would come during the reign of the Roman Empire, and the Romans executed using crucifixion. But long before that, God had determined that his son would give his life through crucifixion. Psalms like Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 depicted a crucifixion and said that Messiah would die by crucifixion. Crucifixion was so horrific that people in polite society, in Roman society, would not even talk about crucifixion. No Roman citizen, unless it was unusual circumstances, could ever be executed by crucifixion. But yet, Jesus died by crucifixion. Chuck Swindoll says, crucifixion combined four qualities the Romans prized most in an execution, unrelenting agony, protracted death, public spectacle, and utter humiliation. And yet, this is such an important event that all four Gospels narrate and tell us about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's not possible to cover every aspect of the coming of Jesus uh, on Palm Sunday and his trial and all that happened in the last week and then culminating in his crucifixion. So this morning, last week, we talked about the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. This morning, we're going to be looking at the crucifixion, Lord willing, on Easter Sunday, the resurrection, and then the Sunday after that, the ascension. But this morning, we want to focus on the crucifixion of Christ in these particular verses in John. And I just want to point out a few things. Number one, the place of crucifixion. The place of crucifixion. Now understand, up to this point, Jesus, after his arrest, was taken to Annas, then to Caiaphas, then to Pilate, then to Herod, then back to Pilate. He's been scourged, verse 1 tells us that. He has been beaten by the soldiers. Scourging was so brutal that very often... A person, the victim, was killed just with the scourging. Uh, the Romans would use a short whip called a flagrum, and it had several leather strips. It had small iron bars or pieces of uh, uh, bone 
small iron balls or pieces of bone, and they would literally flog and brutalize the victim. So when Jesus comes out of the praetorium where Pilate is to stand before the people, he is battered, he is bruised, and he is bleeding. He's wearing a crown of thorns that the soldiers mockingly put on him and a purple robe. But then Matthew and Mark record that they removed the robe and put his own clothes on him. And then we pick it up in verse 16. Then he delivered him, meaning Pilate, he delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. It's interesting. All four Gospels record that Jesus was led away. And then John also tells us in verse 17 that he went out. I think John is emphasizing that Jesus went willingly. We can only imagine how victims of crucifixion, knowing what awaited them, how they must have cursed their, their tormentors, how they must have tried to, to get away or screaming and, and wailing, but we don't see any of that in the account of Jesus. Craig read for us Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So Jesus was led, but Jesus went willingly to the place of crucifixion. He went to his execution without resisting. Because he wasn't really being submissive to the Roman soldiers. He was being submissive to God the Father because this was God's will for his son to die in this way. So verse 17 tells us he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. When you read the Gospel of John, you find out that John is very familiar with certain geographical locations in the land of Palestine and particularly around Israel. And so Golgotha was apparently well known to the readers of John's gospel. Now, we do not know the exact place of Golgotha. Uh, some believe it is called that because of a skull-like appearance that may or may not be. And though we don't know the exact spot, there is a place in, outside of Jerusalem called Gordon's Calvary. And some believe this could be a possible location of the crucifixion. I have a picture of that in my office that I took when Sally and I were in Israel. And there's a tomb nearby, a garden, and we'll talk about that when we talk about the resurrection. Luke 23:33 identifies the place as Calvary. You know, very often we sing hymns or we talk about things that we come up in our vernacular as Christians in churches like ours, and sometimes we wonder, what exactly is Calvary? Well, Calvary is simply the Latin for Golgotha. We know it was outside the city walls, verse 19, it was near the city. You know, the gospel writers don't say a lot about Jesus' physical suffering. They don't focus on it. And if you go into the epistles, the apostles really, they talk about the fact that Jesus suffered, but they don't focus on his physical suffering. His greatest suffering was spiritual, not physical. Um, the other thing they don't say a lot about is the procession. Um, but here, history helps us here. 
there's some things we know from Scripture and some things we can kind of surmise. Now, we know there's something about a procession here because they took him, led him away, and he says he was bearing his cross, which would be a very typical Roman procedure. History tells us normally there would be four soldiers who would be attached to each person being crucified. And then a Roman centurion would normally lead the procession to the place of execution. And history tells us they would normally take the longest route because they wanted people to understand this is what happens when you um, come against Rome. And so we can surmise that this is what happened with Jesus. The Romans usually would have a, the, the centurion would often take uh, something with him to identify the crimes of this individual. Now, John doesn't mention Simon of Cyrene. He is mentioned in Luke 23, 26. The Romans got Simon of Cyrene to bear the cross of Jesus the rest of the way. Apparently, he had been so brutalized physically, he was not able to do that. And none of the New Testament writers really emphasize Jesus' physical suffering. And one of the reasons why I think the gospel writers don't is they didn't really need to. Because the Roman world was very familiar with crucifixion. And so John describes the horror of the cross by simply saying that he was crucified. And in the Roman world, even for the Jews, they would know exactly what a crucifixion looked like and what it entailed. Now, sometimes the Romans would tie their victims to the cross. Other times, to hasten death, they would nail them to the cross. And we know that Jesus was nailed to the cross. It's not in any of the accounts of the crucifixion, but it's in the account when Jesus showed up a week after his resurrection. The first time he showed up in the evening to the disciples, Thomas wasn't there. And they told him, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas said, I, I don't believe. And in John chapter 20, he says, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, I won't believe. And then Jesus showed up and invited Thomas to take his finger and put it in the nail prints. So we do know that Jesus was nailed to his cross. Now, the other thing that history informs us about is that normally, you know, you see a lot of times you see pictures of, of the cross and they're up on this high hill. Uh, even if Golgotha was the place of crucifixion or a place like it, normally they would be crucified in front of the hill and often the, the cross was not that far off the ground. Some historians believe that it's very possible that Jesus' feet were no, no more than two, three, four feet off the ground which kind of makes sense when we see him speaking. He spoke seven times, and those have all been recorded. And also, we're going to see the interaction between him and his mother and John. Alistair Begg says, What made the crucifixion so significant was that the man who was hanging on the center cross was none other than God incarnate. And now notice the placard on the cross, the placard. And so, as they take this procession through the city. Normally, the centurion would, would carry a sign listing the crimes of those who were being condemned. Each of the four Gospels gives a variation of what that placard was, what that sign was. Now, skeptics say, well, this shows the Bible's not, not reliable. I mean, how could, the, how could four different men uh, misunderstand what is the reading on the sign? 
But that is showing variation, not contradiction, because the title was written in three different languages. Verse 19, now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. The writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Uh, Luke adds, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Many believe this trilingual inscription. It, it is symbolic of the fact that this was a universal message. And so it's likely looked something like this, though we don't know exactly, but that's probably similar to what it looked like. We surmise that likely the Latin was probably written first. That's the official language of Rome. The word Hebrew, according to Strong's Concordance, means Hebrewistically or uh, Aramaic, which is what the Jews spoke in Palestine. And Greek was the language of commerce and culture throughout the Roman Empire. So in other words, this was a universal message. And what is the message? Well, Pilate unknowingly declared the royalty of Jesus. Pilate didn't do this to honor Jesus. Verse 21, therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Probably some of the priests, because they were so punctilious about their law, very likely went into the temple to continue with the sacrifices. Probably some stayed by the cross. We don't know for sure. But either way, they rush now into Pilate's hall. You can just see these hypocrites. As now they rush into Pilate's hall. And now they're upset because of the placard above the cross announcing that Jesus is the king of the Jews. But Pilate was getting back at the Jews. Because the Jews had forced his hand. They had backed him into a corner. Five times in the gospel accounts, Pilate basically said, I find no fault in him. What has he done? I think this man is innocent. And yet, because of political reasons, they forced him into declaring and turning Jesus over to be crucified. And I think this was Pilate's sarcastic, scornful way of getting back at the Jews. Yet what he wrote was true. Not only is Jesus the king of the Jews, he's the king of the universe. And yet Pilate, being used by God Almighty to actually proclaim the royalty of Jesus Christ. David Thomas wrote, how often men, even worthless men, unconsciously utter the highest truths. You see, what you find in the crucifixion is these moments where God the Father glorifies his son. And this is one of those moments where it shines forth that this is indeed Jesus, who is the king, the king of the Jews. And then next, notice the parting of the garments, the parting of the garments. Verse 23, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier a part and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. Now, we have to understand that cloth in the first century was very, very valuable. And this was common Roman practice, that they would take the clothes of the victim on the cross. Now, there are some who believe Jesus Christ was crucified naked. Others believe, because of the, the Jewish sensitivities to nakedness, that the Romans took that into account, and Jesus was partially covered. There's an, that's another thing we do not know. 
we do not know. But we know, as far as these clothes, that the soldiers did take his clothing. Jesus' robe or cloak was torn in four pieces. The inner garment, which was valuable, was in one piece, so the soldiers decided not to tear it. But there's something deeper going on here. Verse 24, they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. John is quoting from Psalm 22:18. See, again, we see that God the Father sovereignly oversaw every aspect of Jesus' crucifixion, right down to including his clothing. This was all ordained by God. Does this mean that the Pilate and the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers were not responsible for what they did? No, they were responsible. But yet God was sovereign over every one of these events. And so this is how amazing that our God is. And if you read Psalm 22, you'll see that David wrote that psalm before he'd ever seen a crucifixion because crucifixion wasn't even invented yet. And yet it very aptly describes many details of a crucifixion. And then notice the perfect obedience of Jesus, his perfect obedience. Verse 25, there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Some have pointed out that the four women sort of parallel the, the, the four soldiers. Jesus' aunt was most likely Salome, the mother of James and John, Matthew 27, 56. You see, the disciples, when you study the disciples, they were a pretty tight-knit group. And James and John were cousins of, of Jesus. Mary, the wife of Clopas, was probably the mother of the apostle James the Less. And, but what's going on here? Well, before Jesus fully entered into his atoning work, there was one more commandment to fulfill. Remember, Jesus Christ kept the law perfectly. Jesus Christ was sinless. He never sinned. He never broke any part of the law of God. And so we see Jesus fulfilling one more commandment. Honor your father and your mother, Deuteronomy 5.16. In Jewish society, the traditional role of the oldest son was to provide for his mother when his father was deceased. We surmise Joseph has died. We, the Bible does not clearly say that. He disappears from the pages of Scripture after the nativity and then coming the flight to Egypt and coming back to Nazareth. So based on this, it seems very likely that Joseph has died. And so verse 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by that we believe is John, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Now again, if Jesus feet are not very far off the ground, you can kind of see how he could converse with his mother in the midst of all the torture and all that he's been through even to this point. We know Jesus spoke seven times from the cross. These first three times he spoke, though you have to put all the gospels together to see all seven of those sayings from the cross. But all of the first three were spoken between 9 a.m., the third hour, and 12 noon, the sixth hour. 
Now, when Jesus called his mother woman, that's not disrespectful. In that culture, that was a proper way to address a lady. The term means lady, but it definitely does not mean mother. Because you see, Jesus dignified Mary, but at no time did he ever deify Mary. He uses the same term in John chapter 2 when he performs his first miracle. He says, he says to his mother, woman. Because there, Jesus was entering into his messianic work. And here, he's about to enter into his work of atonement. And so you see some parallels there. Romans 3.10 says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Mary needed Jesus to be her savior, just as every person who's ever born because we are all born in Adam, we are all born in sin. And later, in, in, back in Luke chapter 1, verse 47, in Mary's Magnificent, she says, My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. And now the focal point of the crucifixion, the payment for sin, the payment for sin. Verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put on hyssop and put it to his mouth. Now John doesn't mention the hours of darkness that are mentioned by Matthew and Mark. At 12 noon, there was this supernatural darkness that came upon the land, and that's when there were earthquakes as well. And as far as we can tell, Jesus hung in silence for three hours, and then he broke the silence by four very quick things that he said in quick succession. You know, darkness in the Bible normally symbolizes judgment. One thing that Jesus judges, God judges, is sin. Now, Jesus didn't die for his sin because he had no sin. So what was God the Father judging on his son in those hours of darkness? When those hours of darkness end, Jesus cries out in Matthew 27 about the ninth hour. He cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? In those moments that we will never comprehend, somehow God the Father put my sin and your sin on his own perfect son. And he paid the eternal penalty for our sin. You say, how can he do that in three hours' time? Because you have two eternal beings, one eternal being, two eternal persons, God the Father and God the Son. The best we can understand, there was some kind of separation of fellowship, but there could not be a separation of essence because Jesus was always the Son of God, and he was always God and could never cease to be God. But in a way that is incomprehensible to the human mind, there was a way in which God the Father put my sin and your sin on his own perfect son. And you will notice verse 30, though, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up the spirit. Now, if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, please hear this. Nothing can be added to Jesus' substitutionary work on the cross. You can add nothing to that. Jesus Christ himself declared, it is finished. The payment was made. It does, you can't add baptism. 
You can't add going through some kind of rituals of the church. You can't add good works. You can't add communion. You can't add church membership. There's nothing you can add because Jesus paid the penalty. He paid it all, and he paid it once for all. That doesn't mean that every person will be saved, but it means when you and I repent and realize who Jesus is, that he died for my sin, and we humble ourselves, and we ask God to save us because of what Christ has done on the cross. We repent of our sin, and Jesus, God will save us because of what Jesus has done. The sour wine was a fulfillment of Psalm 69:21. The Greek word finished here is a word that is also used in verse 28. It means accomplished. It means fulfilled. And what the Holy Spirit is emphasizing again is that our debt of sin has been paid in full. 1 Peter 2:24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And then Luke supplies Jesus' final cry. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. No one took Jesus' life from him. Jesus dismissed his spirit. Jesus accomplished the work on the cross that God the Father determined he should accomplish. Jesus said in John chapter 10, talking about his life, no one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus Christ willingly, willingly, literally endured hell for you and me. He took the penalty that we deserve, and God the Father punished his own son. And Jesus said, it's finished. So I don't care what some preacher, some priest, some cleric tells you. There's nothing you can add to that. Only God can forgive sin, and God can only forgive sin when our sin is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. He's the only payment for sin. That's why he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus Christ died once, he was buried once, and he rose once. And you can be saved once and only once. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. We're the unjust. He's the just. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. That's why if you turn away from Jesus, there's nowhere else to go. Oh, there are people, some who've sat in this church over the years, who've walked away or maybe turned to some other religion or turned to some form of human religion, thinking going through that ritual and being a part of that church or, or that cult or, or that belief system. But when you understand the gospel, when you understand the price that he paid, How could you ever believe that you have to add something to that? Do you understand how arrogant that is? And that's what keeps so many people out of heaven, self-righteousness. People just can't believe that I'm that sinful. I must have to do something. I must have to do some kind of work. No, 
Jesus said it's finished. You need to repent, you need to believe, and you need to ask Christ to save you.